Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ, I'm one of your hosts, and thanks for joining me back at the canteen. This is one of our regular segments where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. This week, we're in Philippians chapter three, continuing on in our fall series, Hashtag Goals, a journey through the book of Philippians. Pastor Blake examines the reality that in order to experience the power of Jesus's resurrection, we have to join with him in his death. What does that look like when it comes to our everyday lives? Well, let's listen in and find out as Pastor Blake brings us this week's message. Hey, last week, uh, I, I, was, I was sad to, to not be with you all. In fact, one of my kids this week, uh, we, were, we were at my brother's wedding in Nashville, and uh, one of my kids, it was about Thursday, and they were like, Dad, how long has it been since we've been to church? And I was like, guys, we missed one Sunday, like, We'll be back this weekend, but we really do miss you, and uh, every time we go away, we miss you, and uh, it's good to sing, to celebrate, to be with you. And while I was gone last week, Kenny did a a fantastic job of moving us kind of into the back half of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and he talked about shining bright and and how we do that as disciple makers. Uh, Pray for Kenny. He has shingles, Uh, so, you know, it was a really stressful sermon, apparently. Um, I love that guy. Um, but that's, that's the mission, right? Making disciples is the mission. You hear it when we talk about them. Join Jesus in going out to, to make disciples. But now when we open up this chapter, chapter 3, Paul says, in addition, in addition. So what he's about to say next, this, this isn't something in place of disciple making. This isn't our only goal, but it is something that we add to it. And it's, it's really important that we do this as, as believers, as followers of Christ. He says, in addition... Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice literally means to be glad for grace. Be glad for grace. So Paul wants us to know that in addition to to making disciples, to shining bright, we should be glad for grace in the Lord. He goes on in verse 1 to say, to write to you again about this is is no trouble for me, which is kind of ironic because you, you may remember that Paul is physically in chains in a prison. Like, he's writing, and every time his hand moves as he writes, like, he's dragging a chain with him, right? It's no trouble for me to write rejoice as I do that with a chain around my wrist. And it's a safeguard for you. Wait, what? How is is being glad for grace, how is rejoicing a safeguard for for the Philippians and for you and I? Well, we got to keep reading, right? So verse 2, he jumps in. And he says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. The Philippians, you see, were were being hunted down. They needed to watch out. Whoever this group was, they were more worried about whether or not the Philippians had completed a task than they were about the truth of God's grace. In this case, the act that they wanted to know about was, was circumcision. And so these evil workers were on a mission to hunt, the, hunt down those who hadn't completed the goal of Jewish circumcision. It was a manhunt in every sense of the word, right? So P- Paul says, watch out for them. 
And while on the outside, it seems like these mutilators of the flesh were, were after this legalistic religious practice, they were also hunting for something, for the same thing that you and I often do, and that, that is joy. They were hunting for joy, the ability to rejoice, to be glad for grace. And so that's why Paul says that it was a safeguard for them to, to rejoice because these, these mutilators of the flesh had just made the false assumption that they could get joy, they could attain joy by having control of the religious situation, by exercising their power over the Philippian people. If I do that, if I stay in control, if I take power, then surely I can find some joy for me. The BLT, which is the Blake Lawyer translation of verse 2, says, Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. They are joy stealers. They're coming for your joy. But you see, sometimes you and I, we get so used to, to playing the victim that we don't realize that we've actually become the joy stealers. We read passages like this and you're like, oh yeah, watch out. Watch out for those people. They're bad. And we don't realize that we are them. You see, we just don't always realize that our actions are stealing someone else's joy. There was an instance of this where somebody didn't realize they were stealing someone else's joy that happened around Portland, Oregon a few years ago. Um, the, the family's last name was Albert. And the Albert family had acquired this two-foot-tall 50-pound nose from an ad company that the dad worked for. Nose, like this, huge nose, right? And they sat it on their porch, and they would do all kinds of fun gimmicks with it that brought their three kids a ton of joy. Their favorite one that they talked about um, was for one Halloween, they set a large bowl of candy underneath it with with a sign that said, pick one. So when the nose disappeared from their porch, they knew their nose wasn't running. So they assumed someone had picked the nose off their porch. Okay, not punny. I'm sorry. I can't can't help it. I can't help it. But but they'd done that, right? And so they called the cops, and the cops are like, they filed the reports. The kids collected all the money they had for a reward, which was $6.27. They made these signs. Um, If you see, there was one thing on the sign, I can't remember what it says, but uh, picked it, what's it say? Maybe you accidentally picked it um, about your nose. I just love this story, right? But they did all this because the mom said, our kids were legit sad. Like they were crying over the fact that someone would take their nose. And I think sometimes that happens in, in our lives too, right? Like we just do things on a hunt for our own joy, and we don't realize that as we're doing those things, we're actually stealing someone else's joy. And so we we think about this in verse 2, where Paul's saying, watch out for these dogs, watch out for these joy stealers, and maybe we should add these joy stealers like me. Like, how do we do do that? What does that look like, Blake? Well, sometimes we become critical of people. And, and even if our motive in being critical of someone is to help them improve, which some people really, that it really is their motive, what we don't realize is that we often steal their joy as they wrestle with their own weakness. I've done this. I know I have. 
probably to some of you in the room. Other times we compare people or, or we, we kind of talk down to or about others. And a lot of times we don't even realize that when we're doing that, we're operating from this place where we assume or we believe that we are better. And in those moments, man, joy is, is zapped. Sometimes we, we become aggressive or, or we don't compromise when people challenge our thoughts or ideas. And what we miss while we're in defense mode, right, is that we're taking a big bite out of the other person's joy. Man, sometimes it's just good old negativity that sucks joy out of a room, isn't it? We come in, we're negative, we're discouraging, and joy is gone. And in all these things, right, in all these moments where these little joy <laughs> things are happening, are being stolen, they, they, they lead to these moments where we can just spiral down into this emotional manipulation that leaves people discouraged and wondering, how can I ever move forward? How could I ever rejoice when everything in this world and everyone seems to want a piece of my joy? Watch out for the dogs, Paul says. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. Watch out for the joy stealers, the joy stealers like me. So what was Paul going to say in response? Like, what was, what was his reaction to these joy stealers? Well, Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. In verses 4 to 6, Paul talks about all these things that he could have been confident in. Things that one might assume would bring him joy. After Paul talks about his, his high-ranking position in the Jewish world, after he talks about the, the multiple outlets and facets of power that he had in that time, after he even talks his own personal holiness, he's like, listen, according to the law, I was, I was blameless. I was a good guy. He says all of those gains, all of those things that have gained him influence and power, they, that are good things, right, in, in many instances, all those things were now losses, because what Paul realized was that he was actually depending on those things instead of on grace. He wasn't being glad for grace. He wasn't rejoicing in Christ. Y'all, this is good news. And when we hear it, it actually might pinch us a little bit, but, but this is good news. Jesus will take anything that you think you need in order to give you the one thing that you really need. He will take anything that you think you need in order to give you the one thing you really need. Jesus will take possessions, positions, power. He will even take your own personal holiness, the, the things that you are proud of for being a good person. He will take those and he will run your name through the mud if they are keeping you from depending on him. And that is good news. Thank God he pursues us and works those things out of us so that we can experience the joy of Christ. The position of influence you have, if you, if you start counting on that more than Jesus, Jesus has absolutely no problem taking it away. All those possessions that you've amassed, they can be gone in an instant. Just ask Job. Power, the moment, the moment that you start counting on your power to reach your goals in life, is often the moment that you drain Jesus' power out of your life. Personal holiness, pride comes before the fall. As soon as you start trusting that you're a good person, Jesus can expose something darker and deeper in you than, that you might not even realize is there. A sin so heinous that you just don't even want to face it. What a grace. 
What a grace that Jesus would take anything, anything away from you that you think you need in order to give you the one thing that you need. In fact, Paul says this. Every time Christ took something from him, he realized that it was actually like dung. Like dung. Look at verse 8. Paul says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Paul is implying this. The things that he thought were a treasure were actually trash. Every time the Lord would strip one of those things away from him, the the things that he thought were valuable, that would get him ahead in life, that, that would move him forward, he realized just how invaluable it actually was. Now, that word dung has a lot of word pictures associated with it. Poop emojis. You know, all the things. There's some of them you can imagine without any help. But one of them, in the Greek, is, is this idea of scraps being thrown to the dog. Like the pieces of food, the gristle, the bones, the stuff you just don't want to eat. Like you throw them off the table and you give them to the dog. Remember what Paul called those joy stealers? Watch out for the dogs. So Paul is is implying that at some point he realized that all these things that he'd amassed and worked really hard for in life could just be thrown to these guys. He could just give them to these guys who were trying to take them away, who were trying to steal his joy. He didn't have to hold on to his family name or his professional fame. He could throw them to the dogs like scraps. I want to live in that kind of freedom, don't you? To not be bound or held back or feel like I have to obtain some kind of image or status? Wouldn't it be nice to live with that kind of... How did Paul do it? If Paul was letting go of all of that and, and encouraging us to do the same, where did he find his joy? Where did it come from? Philippians 3.9 And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. You see, Paul's joy was coming from Christ. But specifically, it was coming from the righteousness that Christ gave him. And that's the same righteousness that Christ gives to you and I when we express our faith and trust in Jesus. You see, righteousness is the one thing that we need to rejoice. You say, Blake, how, how does this work? I'm not, I'm not sure I'm following Well, first, we need to understand that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And Jesus took our sin to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's pretty transformative. Old made new. And and he made everyone who believes in him completely righteous. Blake, I don't feel righteous. He's still working that righteousness out in you, right? But you have it. Romans 3.22 says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. And then what we see in Scripture time and time and time again is that the righteous one rejoices. Psalm 64.10 says the righteous one rejoices in the Lord and takes refuge in him. All those who are upright in heart will offer praise. This, you see, is where you find your joy, the righteousness of Christ. You're like, okay, Blake, I get it. 
Righteousness comes from joy. That's how Paul was able to have joy, to throw all of these accomplishments to these dogs, to these mutilators of the flesh, and not be upset. Like, but how do I do that? How do I live that way? You have to set a different kind of goal. You have to set a different kind of goal. Look back at Philippians 3, in the very next verse, verses 10 and 11. Paul writes this. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. See, sometimes when we see that our joy comes from righteousness, many of us want to ask ourselves the question, well, how can I become more righteous? But that's the wrong question. That's the wrong goal. Because for all who believe in Jesus, you have already been made righteous in the sight of God. The right question then comes from right here in verses 10 and 11. How can I know Jesus and be conformed to his death? If I want more joy, the key isn't in becoming more righteous. He's given that to me. The key is in knowing him and being conformed to his death. Now, over the next few minutes, I'm going to talk to you about some ideas uh, that come almost word for word from a book that I would highly recommend to you by Paul Miller called J-Curve, Dying and Rising with Christ. And, and it's, like, it's been life-changing for me. I can't recommend it highly enough. And I hope, right, I hope that you leave here today inspired to find joy in the J-curve. Now, let me explain it first very broadly, and then we're going to talk about three simple steps to finding joy in the J-curve. So we've got a picture here. It's, it's pretty simple, right? So simply, the J-curve is a picture of Jesus' story in the shape of a J. Everybody's got this, right? Like, you, you, can, you can handle this. Jesus came down to earth and, and because he loved us. And, and then at the bottom of the J is his, his death on the cross. Like he continued to press into going down for us all the way to the grave. On the way there, right, suffering happened. But after his death, he was resurrected and exalted by God to a place that was higher than he was before. The idea of living in the J-curve is that we become like Christ, we know Christ, and we're conformed to his death by dying and rising with him through the everyday moments of our lives. We die, we rise, and we experience the life-changing power and joy of Christ in us. One of our first J-curves as believers right, is baptism, just, just like we saw Ella Kate do today. She realized that, that Jesus loves her, and, and she wants to love and obey him, so, so she gave her old self up in the waters of baptism, dying to self and rising with Christ. It seems to be easy to find joy in, in that J-curve, but, but how do we find joy and rejoicing in the everyday like little things of life, right? Three steps. Follow along with me if you can. First, we recognize that we're in a J-curve. We recognize that we're in a J-curve. Paul Miller tells a story in his book of a lady named Kayla. I almost changed the name so that Kayla Spoonamore wouldn't have to freak out the whole time and get sweaty armpits, but I'm kidding. I love her. But I didn't because I want you to find it in the book if you, if you come across it. But her name was Kayla. And Kayla decided to volunteer to work a week at a camp that served families who had children with special needs. She took a week's worth of vacation, paid $500, and she went. And one night, she was standing in the food line, and a parent, one of the moms, passed by. And as she did, she thought she heard Kayla belittling her parenting. 
which was obviously a huge no-no. And so this mom reported Kayla to the camp directors. But when the camp directors came to Kayla, she was like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I, I wasn't even talking about, you know. So now there's just this huge, messy situation where no one knew what to do next because nothing could be really proven, and you've got all kinds of drama. And if you, if you can imagine, like, that happened at night, come back to breakfast and stand in line the next morning, right? Everybody's like, right? You, you can, you've been there, and in one way or another, you've been there. And so that's really taxing on Kayla. And so she comes to the Millers, and she's distraught. She's unsure about what to do. So Paul is like, well, tell me, tell me the story. Tell me. He's listening, he's listening, he's empathizing, and he's like, yeah, this is a confusing situation. It's really hard. Um, you know, like, I can see why this is hard. Like, your week started in a really good place. Like, you, you were choosing to make some sacrifices, giving up vacation time and money to come and to serve at this camp. And it felt good to choose love. But then, as you're choosing love, instead of being honored for that, instead of that being met with honor, it was met with, with dishonor from this mom. And so then Paul began to explain. He said, Kayla, you're experiencing what Paul calls the fellowship of his sufferings in Philippians 3.10. If you still got that pulled back, pulled up, look back. He says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his, his sufferings. He said, listen, Jesus gave up a lot to come into our world, and it was a good thing. But when he got here, he wasn't met with honor. He was met with dishonor. And that got worse and worse and worse until it became suffering on his way to the cross. And Paul Miller looked at Kayla and he said, Kayla, you now get to join Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings. He went on to explain the J-curve. And that in Christ, resurrection always follows death. Now, none of this made the situation go away. People still whispered. It was still hard. But what it did do was allow Kayla to recognize that she was in a J-curve. She was headed down that, that left side of the curve. But now understanding the J-curve, understanding the gospel inside of the situation, it meant that, that she could assume that somehow resurrection would happen. And all of a sudden, a situation that had left Kayla swirling and, and unstable and uncertain was now met with this, this certainty, this, this stabilization by recognizing that she was in a J-curve. What's this mean for us? Suffering disorients us, doesn't it? Even the, the little suffering, the little heart, like, it's confusing. It hurts. It steals our joy. But recognizing that we're in a J-curve locates us. It stabilizes us. It helps us to make sense of our surroundings. And when we can make sense of the suffering that we face, it causes us to pray. It causes us to look up and ask the Lord to be with us in the midst of those sufferings. Because when we pray, guess what we do? we get to know Jesus. We get to know him. We get to be conformed to his death. And that's the goal. But we can't just recognize that we're in a J-curve, right? That, that doesn't get us all the way to rejoicing. So, so the next thing that we have to do, second, we receive the fellowship of his sufferings. We recognize them, and then we receive them. Miller tells another story about his own daughter, Emily. And their experience um, 
as a family, uh, one year, her junior year of high school, uh, she was at a Christian high school on the field hockey team, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, she gets benched. Um, and, and so the word on the street was that the coach was playing favorites, and Emily was no longer one of the favorites. That probably never happens in the real world. I, I joke. So, so one of the moms approaches Paul, and she says, Paul, I just cannot believe what coach is doing to your daughter. That probably never happens either. And Paul looked at her. He said, you know, I'm actually thankful Emily has this low-level suffering on my watch. Life is much more like sitting on the bench than starring in a game. He said, that mom looked at me, she's a professing Christian, and she's looking at me like I'm a Martian. Like, do what? Why would you want that? Well, in the book, Miller goes on to explain that in that moment, instead of being in fellowship with Christ, this mom was in fellowship with sports. He writes this. What we were in shaped how this mom and I viewed the coach. Because this mom was in sports, she saw the coach as the enemy. He had sinned against her sports idol, and thus against the community. I wasn't happy with the coach, but because I was in Christ, I saw the coach as God's instrument to potentially draw Emily into Jesus. The mom was mildly upset. I was concerned, and I was waiting and praying, but my location in Jesus shaped my response to Emily's benchwarming. It took the steam out of me. Union with Christ thrives under stress, he writes, because stress drives us more deeply into Christ. On the other hand, union with sports wilts when your daughter is sitting out the game on the bench. What I want us to see is that when we receive the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, it doesn't cause our negative emotions to go away. Paul was still sad. He was still concerned for his daughter. But because he recognized that he was in a J-curve and he received that low-level suffering that he was feeling, he was, he was then able to feel the negative emotion without being controlled by it. Receiving the fellowship of his sufferings is, is really, really, and I'll give it a third, really important. Because when we don't, our negative emotions begin to control us and it spirals down into cynicism and bitterness and resentment that begins to rule our lives. It kind of reminds me of the moment that Jesus is praying to God in the garden. He's praying in that moment, Father, if you would take this cup of suffering away from me. But God doesn't. And so Jesus receives the cup. And doing that, Scripture tells us, he, he is anguished. He's so anguished, he's sweating drops of blood. But he receives the suffering without bitterness or resentment. And I want to tell you today that when you are in Christ, you can do the same. When you're in something else, that suffering eats you alive and steals your joy. So, it's after you grow in this recognizing and receiving that you begin to see God's righteousness overhauling more and more of your life. You begin to see it fleshing its way out. And in those moments, you finally get to the point where you can rejoice in the fellowship of his sufferings. You're like, okay, Blake, I got it. I got it. The whole point of this is just rejoice about the hard things. Nope. You see, when we rush to this point, what we're doing is we're making the assumption that we can resurrect ourselves that our accomplishments in life, that our resources, that all of our stuff can actually bring us to a better place on our own. 
So we can't rush to this without first recognizing and receiving. You don't have the power to do that. You can't control your resurrection. I love how Paul describes his rejoicing in Philippians 3.11. He says, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul's just glad for grace as he sits in prison. He doesn't know how or when or in what way the grace of resurrection will happen, but he assumes that somehow, some way, it's coming. And he assumes that because of his faith in Jesus. I'm reminded uh, that this is the same Paul that had what he describes as a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. That thorn in the flesh, Paul writes that he asked God to take it away, not once, not twice, but at least three times. He's praying, God, take away this suffering. I don't like this. This is hard. Take it away. In other words, it took him a minute to recognize that the Lord had him in a J-curve and to receive the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. But then we read this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Rejoicing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. It only comes after you've recognized that you're in a J-curve and after you've received the fellowship of his suffering. And finally, only because of Christ's righteousness in you can you rejoice in the fellowship of his sufferings. So here's the goal, church. This week, the week after, maybe this afternoon, find joy in the J-curve. Know Jesus and be conformed to his death. That was Paul's goal. He wasn't perfect in it. And that's what he wants to remind us of in these next few verses as the band gets ready to come back up. Verses 12 through 14, Paul says, Not that I've already reached the goal, or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. In this visionary statement, right, in this statement that looks forward, Paul is reversing what we read in verse 2. In verse 2, Paul was saying, watch out for those dogs, those evil workers, those joy stealers. They're hunting you down. And now Paul is saying, take hold, reach forward, pursue. Instead of being hunted by these joy stealers, go on the hunt for joy in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you each a personal question today. Have you made every effort to take hold of Jesus Christ? Have you made every effort to take hold of Jesus Christ? Are you doing everything you can to take hold of the one who's taken hold of you? Are you hunting for Jesus, seeking to find him, dying and rising with him every day? Last weekend, I, I told you I had the honor of conducting my youngest brother's wedding ceremony. Now, my new sister-in-law was, was born in India, raised in Dallas. And so while the ceremony was Christian, we incorporated a few Indian traditions. And one of those was the Jaymala. Uh, the Jaymala. And, and this happens after the father gives away the bride. 
And what happens is you'll see here, this is Braden and Sunshine, and I'm in the background with a goofy face, and uh, probably crying. That was what I did most of the time. <clears throat> but uh, the, the Jemala uh, was this ceremony where they take that garland of flowers, and the bride puts one on the groom, and then the groom puts one on the bride. And this symbolized their acceptance of one another as, as their spouse, right? And it followed like, hey, dad gives her away, like who gets the, all right. So Braden and Sunshine are telling me about this as we prepare, and, and Sunshine explains that um, while they do this, everybody in the room is supposed to be standing up, clapping, and cheering, and celebrating. And I'm first like, Sunshine, have you met my family? Because they're not as dark as you are. And we're like, we don't do that. Like, we, we don't stand up and clap and cheer, unless it's Purdue football. So my natural question, right, is like, why? why? Like, why are people standing up and cheering? And she's like, well, I don't know. It's like, that's just what we do. That's the tradition. Okay. So the day before the ceremony at the rehearsal, I am butchering all these Hindi words. And at one point, Sanjana's brother-in-law, Rashank, lovingly tells me, Blake, you sound like an angry Russian. <laughs> <laughs> all right good he's like these words are meant to be elegant i'm like elegant elegant think elegant not angry russian okay <laughs> so i'm like rashank help me dude like and so i worked on words like kanyadanam and mangosutra and saptapati but when i came to jemala rashank gave me some great insight I'm trying to say it, and he's like, emphasize the, the J more. He said, J means victory. He said, if you go to a cricket match in India, you'll hear the crowds going, J, 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 J. And he's like, they're basically chanting for a win. The light bulb came on. That's why people cheer. This marriage, they see it as a, as a win. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, it's like these two people have won by finding and accepting the one who's right for them. And that's why it's a jo joyful moment. I'm like, oh yeah, I got this now. Like, we are going to celebrate. I'm, I'm in. And so it was one of the coolest moments that I've ever led in a wedding as people are hooping and hollering. Some are giving like cowboy yeehaws. And I mean, it was just crazy, right? It was so fun to have a room full of people cheering in affirmation that Braden and Sanjana had taken hold of the one who was right. Luke 15, verse 10, Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. J, 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 J. So I want to ask you again. Have you made every effort to take hold of him, the one who makes you righteous? Every effort. You see, it was you who put Jesus through that first J-curve. He came down from heaven because he loved you. But then, because of your sin and my sin, he was humiliated. He suffered. He was killed. He went to the bottom of that curve. But three days later, resurrection came. And because Jesus is alive, we have the opportunity to take hold of him, to join him in the J-curve. You, too, can leave your old self behind and press forward with him to pursue him, to take hold of him, to hunt him down. You see, today, if you're hunting for joy, you're hunting for Jesus. Have you made every effort to take hold of him? 
Your faith in him gives you righteousness, and that righteousness gives you joy. And so as the band begins to play, I want to invite you to stand. Tori and Bethany are going to serve as communion today. They get to serve LK communion for the very first time. And I have no doubt that, that what LK would say to you is, man, come join Jesus with me. Change your mind about sin today. Take your sin seriously. Turn from it. Throw it down like scraps to the dogs. Change your mind about your Savior today. Let go of anything that's behind you and take hold of Jesus who's gripping your heart, right? Change your mind about salvation today. It's not about your works or your accomplishments or anything you've been able to do for yourself. That's not what gets you into heaven. Just be glad for his grace that makes a way for you. If you realize you need to change your mind about any of those things, that's called repentance. And when you repent, man, the angels in heaven are chanting, chanting, J, 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 J. Every angel. They've, they're, they're proclaiming that you have found the one who is right for you, Jesus. If you need to repent today and make that decision, I'm going to be right down here in front. Katie's going to be right there in the back. I encourage you to find us. If today you've been united with Christ, man, we invite you to come around the outside, make your way up to the front, take a piece of the bread and the juice. It causes us to remember that Jesus went through the J-curve for us, and we can join him in it. Let me pray for us as we respond to the gospel today. Jesus, we thank you for loving us, for giving us the victory. Spirit, as you're working in each person's heart and mind and life, I pray that those you are convicting and calling to yourself would find the courage to join you to repent, to change their mind about their sin, to change their mind about their Savior, to change their mind about salvation. They don't have to work for it anymore. They can simply rejoice and be glad for the grace that is theirs in Christ. Give us courage to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, we hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus and going outside. Uh, if you're a part of Christ's community, hey, let's, let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ Community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that, uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in and experience Christian community as it was meant to be, and continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and I will see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.